Okay, uh, let's let's throw you right into the fire real quick. Uh, great, go for it. Terrence and I were just talking about the right amount of eye contact you should <laughs> give somebody to convey respect versus <laughs> chicken shittedness. <laughs> but without being like creepy. What what do you think it is? You think you should like, you know, make direct eye contact but maybe look away every once in a while to kind of break it up a little bit? <laughs> you definitely have to look away, but I I'm like super socially anxious, so I'm always when I'm talking to someone, I'm, like, overthinking how much oh, I'm yeah. looking at them. Yeah, I do that. So I'm, like, always, like, trying to gauge, like, a, a moment to look away so I'm not being creepy. <laughs> I do that. You you steal a, a, a look out the window or down into your lap or something. Because it is weird when you're, like, talking. I was just telling Tom that, like, I kind of have, like, an old mafia philosophy about this. Like, I don't trust anybody that can't look me in the eyes. But at the same time, too much is they're trying yeah. they're trying to convince you of something I, I overplay my hand sometimes to try to look like more of a tough customer than i am like i <laughs> go too much on the eye contact the hardest one is when i like go to my therapist you know and because i'm like yeah trying oh, to, i'm like oh she's <laughs> yeah. like reading everything i'm doing so it's like do i look away or just like stare straight into her eyes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is, that is that's a tough one. yeah for sure um so yeah okay so then how would you like us to introduce you say like my chapter um which is uh the quiet corner quiet one. corner okay all right yeah so we're northeast connecticut that's a pretty awesome name um for a region <laughs> yeah that's like the colloquial like people in the area call it that um and uh people in like hartford call it like the bumblefuck corner right right <laughs> i don't know think about connecticut i've never been that far northeast yeah it's actually a really really nice rural state it's just that we have all the assholes in the south near new york um and those are the only people anyone knows about right but i love it it's really beautiful it's all like dairy land around here dairy farms and stuff like that right my friend greg lives in stanford and he is an asshole so you're you're right in that assessment (laughs) also found out that you call people from connecticut nutmeggers Really? You know, like you would be a yeah. New Mexican yeah, or a Texan, do. or a, I'd be a Kentucky. What is that Katie's come from? a nutmegger. <laughs> it's a nutmeg state. What is a nutmeg? Is it like what they what make? Is a... Yeah, I don't. <laughs> oh, de- desert boy here. <laughs> we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> is that a real question? <laughs> well, I know, okay, I know what it is in soccer. <laughs> It's when you kick the ball between someone's legs. I'm sure you try to get half nutmeg. I probably did. It's like a seed that you know when you dry out, and then it's um right. a spice. But according to Tom Sexton, you can get high off of it. Oh <laughs> I yeah, that, right? I think that's apocryphal, but I, you know, I don't know. I've never tried it. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Wow. Mm-hmm. You come to work, you learn about nutmeggers. <laughs> All right. I'm originally from the Jersey Shore, though. I feel like that's important. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. What do they call? What do they call you there? Uh, Jerseyites, Jerseyans. Uh, I mean, the only thing, the only like identification I've ever heard is like a a Jersey girl, and I literally can't even say it. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um. All right. So I think we're good on levels. Uh, it's been a minute since we've recorded in here. Um, it's like it's like flying an old ship that you haven't been in in a while. Okay. Um, so, all right. So, uh, this week on... I never start an episode like this. <laughs> this week on the Trillbilly... You guys usually just fade in, right? <laughs> yeah. We just hop right into it. Um, so, all right. So, Katie, uh, might as well just hop right on into it and no more questions about nutmegging or... Uh, or well, now it sounds like a, like a sex act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Prudent, of course. Right. Um, yeah. All right, let's jump into it. Uh, so, Katie, um, you uh, recently wrote a piece. Uh, it's called Against Utopian Electoralism. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about it because I think it'll probably wind up sort of serving as the um, sort of frame of re- framework or sort of reference guide for this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it was you wrote it a few months ago, but I think it's probably more relevant now than ever. Um, could you sort of just explain what your uh, central argument is in that piece and what you're trying to get after? Um, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> I actually haven't looked at it in a long time. 
It's um, okay. I have it like memorized. I, if you want me to, I think that was um, like back when someone said that London would have voted for Bernie, right? Correct. Um, I, I believe the context was uh, the New York. One of the New York DSA chapters was talking about passing an endorsement of Bernie. Oh right, uh, yeah. I think that was um, part of the context. New York. Correct. New York was thinking about doing it. Right. Um, and they didn't, thankfully. Um, right. But I mean, I just, I honestly, it wasn't like that um, original of of a like a piece because I was mostly just kind of referencing a bunch of different writing on the nature of you know the bourgeois state because I think that that understanding is kind of lost when we talk about electoralism in DSA. So it's just kind of like bringing people's focus back to. Um, the idea that there's no, like, it's not that there's, um, like, empty seats, like, empty of political power or um, preference to the ruling class, um, that we can just swap in socialists and they'll, you know, slowly, you know, piece by piece bring about a socialist political system, um, that we need to, like, understand that the only... I actually don't know if I put this in that piece, but since then I've been kind of, you know, saying saying more that um, the only role that a socialist could have in the state is slowly dismantling it in favor of the working class taking power back. Um, and so, like, they need to make their own jobs irrelevant over time. And so that's what, that's really what building working class power should be for any kind of politician going into the state is making their own selves and their own position irrelevant. Right. Um, you know, so, yeah, so, like, one of the quotes actually that you had um i'm gonna quote your piece back at you i know you said it's not okay. very original but um i think it is um you said capitalism will adapt to reforms from within the political system or it will violently thwart attempts to ins install actual socialism one can only understand progressive reforms and or an increase in socialist politicians as winning quote unquote winning if one refused to understand the real nature of capitalism specifically it's ability to adapt and the reason why i want to talk about that right now is because we're you know right in the wake of this sort of um electoral victory although it's not an electoral victory it was a primary of of alexandria ocasio-cortez and so you've got a lot of these debates sort of in the air right now about the sort of um efficacy uh both short term and long term of running socialists within the democratic party for a sort of larger systemic change. And so, you know, with that quote in mind, um, yeah, could you talk a little a little bit about, like, the sort of, like, endeavor of trying to pursue reforms in the nature of a bourgeois state, in the nature of a, of a capitalist state? Yeah, I mean, in, I really believe, um, like, especially that, I mean, I believe both, but the latter is especially true when we forget that, that if it's faced with an actual threat, like, say, a socialist politician that, would actually threaten the power of the state, it would, you know, respond violently. And, you know, any kind of embrace of a socialist politician is something to kind of, you know, eye critically because, um, it mean, you know, in my opinion, I think it means that they're not, like, truly threatening the state um, in any meaningful way. Um, and in terms of reforms um, and capitalism adapting to them, um, you know, I see things like, uh, calling for nationalization of, like, the fossil fuel industry. Um, and, you know, that as a reform that would slowly lead to, you know, a socialist eco-socialist uh, eco state or something like that. And I, you know, the nature of the capitalist system is, you know, you can see it happening in Norway, that which is, like, you know, held up as this, you know, by some as this ideal eco-socialist state. Right. And um, it just functions like another private business at a state level um, and becomes increasingly dependent on oil and um, functions in the marketplace like any other um, profiting business. So it's it's like fully co-opted that idea of nationalization um, and turned it into a, you know, an adaptation of capitalism. Right, and that's, that's something that, that we could connect to here because I, I remember after the war on coal or whatever here uh, – you know, one of the one of the discussion points was, well, what if we had, had nationalized our coal industry like England did in the 1950s? What would that look like? Right, and the reason we were so, it this is it's kind of complicated because I think one of the reasons why, you know, back in my sort of earlier, more liberal days, the reason why I 
uh, was so fixated on that idea was because like you had this incredibly reactionary campaign like the Friends of Coal campaign and it was all predicated on the idea that the Obama administration was killing coal. And my thinking was, oh, you know, like in England, they nationalized the coal industry. Thatcher killed it. And so the whole war on coal narrative was inverted. You had leftists saying mm-hmm. that Thatcher had killed coal and that you, and you could then rally them towards some sort of like larger liberatory movement. When in all reality, that would have it was doomed to fail in the exact same way that um, it was it was here. Right. Had it been nationalized? I don't know. Yeah. And it's not like it's not this like neutral um situation um there's the people in in power in our government have a reason to maintain the coal industry like so if the trump administration nationalized the coal industry the trump administration is now in charge of the coal industry like it's like <laughs> it's not like suddenly it's you know under control of the working class because we quote unquote nationalized it it's now under fascist uh control right so <laughs> I, I don't know what people are like expecting to happen like imagine you know magically it becomes socialist right but you have to like you have to understand you know the specifics of power in in the situation that you're trying to organize under yeah, here you still have some people on the left that that are like fully in favor of that nationalization even under trump and and they sort yeah. of demonize the environmentalists saying these are the people why you know what i'm saying yeah. kind of like the inverse of the thatcher thing right right yeah. it's an inverse yeah. of an inverse looking at you nick mullins you rat bastard <laughs> <laughs> that's a little inside yeah, sorry, true billy's inside joke <laughs> yeah. um so that well that actually kind of gets at it something i did want to talk about too um sort of tied to that is like a common refrain you sort of hear from what I, I would term maybe like the right wing of DSA is that like those of us to their left on, on you know us uh, in this room and, and you ha- we've sort of fetishized losing we fetishized wanting to lose mm-hmm. I'm kind of like interested in and this will sort of lead to another sort of question I want to ask in a second, but like what's the easiest way to dispel that myth that we're that we that we are that we have unrealistic demands and that we have sort of fetishized our own position far left on the on the spectrum? Um, I mean my the first thing that comes to my mind is the only consistent thing that's lost is realignment of the Democratic Party. Like so or or reformism. That's the only thing that's consistently lost in history. Right. So, um, you know, I think people frame the election itself as winning, but they don't have, if you don't have an actual plan for after the election, I don't know what you're talking, like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? So they just, it's like they're using the literal word win to <laughs> mean something larger than it actually does and the only thing and I, I think you said this on a Trilogy's podcast a couple of weeks back is just the only thing that is consistently won in history is revolution yeah it, it is sort of um the only thing with historical precedents right <laughs> like yeah. there's the, yeah you're not gonna look back and see like a bunch of uh, i don't know i mean yeah yeah it's the only thing with sort of historical precedents you're right um but i, I guess you know, and you mentioned this on Twitter the other day, is like something that um, I think is pretty interesting is in these debates when we talk about realistic and unrealistic demands. Mm-hmm. One of the things I hear a lot is, uh, and you pointed this out, like an unrealistic demand is like abolishing private property. Like, mm-hmm. um, and you you know, you gave a, one good example of as has to, that's not that unrealistic once you, like in, in your example is the housing uh market and uh decommodifying housing like what is your what do you have to say to 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 this sort of like notion of like realistic versus unrealistic demands Hmm, that's a good question i mean i think it's just a matter of interpreting these kind of socialist terms that people kind of throw around so abolishing private property sounds like when you just use it as a buzzword which in that interview that candidate was kind of just throwing it out like that sounds like revolutionary abolishing private property but it's just about i mean to me it's just about interpreting it materially according to current circumstances so um it's not unrealistic if you actually just take a minute to think about what that means so if you just take a minute to think decommodified housing is taking someone's private property away from them and giving it to the public um uh and 
like collectivizing agriculture would be abolishing private property, but that's not even that far-fetched because we already do some, you know, agricultural planning on a federal level. Right. Um, you know, even even workers, you know, taking control of a, of a cooperative is, ab- is abolishing private property um, to a degree. So it's just about, like, taking a minute to think about, you know, the current circumstances and actually reading what a Marxist, like, concept means and how it was used in history. And then, you know, so I think anything like that is just a matter of um, taking the time to go deeper than just, you know, some, you know, throwing around some terms. Right. Yeah, it's... um. It's all about property relations, right? I mean, it's all about like who yeah. owns and, and power relations, and 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 t- for me, I think one of the thing that gets gets sort of like lost in the whole uh, sort of discussion about Ocasio Cortez, and you know, and I and I and I want to be careful about it because I'm not like <laughs> I don't know, like I hate to sound like someone who's just sort of like naysaying or or trying to like. Yeah, you 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 two get accused of being wet blankets that, fairly often. <laughs> I'm definitely I'm definitely always wet blanket. Right. I'm not trying to like dilute anybody's energy or optimism or anything. I guess all I'm all I'm saying is that uh, what we established earlier, there's not a whole lot of historical precedents for doing what um, they ostensibly want to do: reform this corporate. Uh, bourgeois it's a business party it's a it's a party in the interest of business of the business class i mm-hmm. i don't i think that's a very tall order and and i think that we'd probably be better off putting our energy somewhere else but um but if you know if it gets people sort of interested in dsa and if it gets their sort of like energies up in the in the short term then i i don't know i i i'm not going to try to diffuse that but i guess what i am concerned about is is trying to <laughs> what I am going to diffuse. <laughs> God damn it! I I spent I had a lot of time on the road last night trying to formulate how to do this, how to like set this whole thing up in a way that didn't sound like I was just shitting on everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So like, That's what the history of socialism? We're just all you know, just shitting. Socialists are always shitting on everyone else. So. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's politics, right? I mean, it's politics just like anything else. Um, you know, I think people would probably be surprised, but not that surprised to know that Lenin was just as petty as any of us and was just <laughs> shitting on everybody. I mean, if you read any Rosa Luxemburg, she's just like shitting on every man around her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which we endorse. Um, so, but so yeah, so it's a it's a it's kind of a tall order, but so but. One of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you about, um, specifically because I think our, our situations are kind of similar, you know, you, you live in a rural area, we do too. Um, one of the things I kind of wanted to talk to you about is like, I can in- imagine somebody saying, listening to all the concerns we may have raised about Ocasio-Cortez in the last um, couple of weeks or whatever, and saying like, look, I agree with what you're saying, um, you, uh, you know, it's all fair and good. But, you know, the political system in our state, like Kentucky, is so far to the right and it is um, so closed off to any kind of um, emancipatory politics at all that, like, you've got to kind of, like, introduce people to the idea of socialism through this sort of watered down democratic socialist. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and so like I can see someone saying that and and I kind of understand because, you know, like I've been an organizer for a while and, and it's just sort of like. I understand the nature of what they're saying, but at the same time, like, I'm just wondering if you, if you all have sort of run into this and if so, like, you know, what, what are you doing to sort of, um, to sort of engage with that idea? So, I mean, I actually think we, I'm in a rural area, but I think we have politically like some differences in, in terms of like the demographics of the area, because we're kind of a blue state. I mean, we have a Democratic governor. Um, People are more or less fine with our senators, (laughs) uh, Murphy and Blumenthal. But, I mean, a lot of people in our specific region, the Northeast Corner, went for Trump. um, And it's a very 
blue-collar area, lots of agriculture, blue-collar jobs. That's basically it. Um, so their material circumstances are maybe the same as, as your area. But they, I, in my opinion, it has made them kind of open to socialism a little bit. We have not had hardly any problems with, like, outreach in our area. Um, we did some canvassing. I know it's like, you know. Of uh, the liberal uh, punching bag. Hey, we uh, threw a pool party. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But and every single person we talked to was a Trump supporter, and every single person was interested in Medicare for all. Yeah. Um. So they and so they the tide is turning against the Democrats in Connecticut. Um. At least at the state level, um. People are really upset about our state budget that's been mismanaged by the Democratic Party, um, and they're pretty discontent. So, you know, one of the reasons our chapter doesn't do any electoral is we, or at least through the um, through the Democratic Party, and we've kind of talked about almost never doing that, is because the people in this area fucking hate the Democrats. Right. Why would we ever run on the Democratic ballot line? <laughs> um, and it's, it's just interesting because the other, like, Northeast states, you know, kind of buy into that idea. And I'm just like, I'm looking around and everyone shit talks to Democrats all the time. I'm like, that's a losing strategy for us at least. Um, So that's kind of interesting. So I actually think people are pretty, if you talk to them on an issue basis, they're pretty open to the idea of socialism. And um, even when we've said we're, socialists like straight out to conservative people they're like "Eh, okay i get it right um but if we were gonna like if we were to go up to them and be like we're trying to help the democrats uh pass you know medicare for all (laughs) i'm sure that they wouldn't listen to us yeah when we tell people we're socialists that's cool man i'm presbyterian (laughs) (laughs) that is true i've not I can guarantee you that if I, you know, and I have had these interactions in Whitesburg, I, I can get, yeah, I I would get more, much more vitriol from saying I was a Democrat than I would just an outright socialist. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Hell, I gosh, wouldn't yeah. tell it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lesson to be learned from that, though, which is that, like, that's the program, right? Like, we're anti-capitalists. Um, you know, and you, and you, you know, you stake out your position and then you fight for sort of, um, not just policies, but for representation and and some of these other things from that position. And then people, you know, they see what you're doing and they, they come to that. I don't know. I, I, I just say that because I, I just get sort of like, uh, uh, anxiety when I hear people talking about like sort of tailoring our message to, uh, uh, an electorate that's that's more towards the right and that's you know got this these notion these 20th century notions of communism and and all this well i mean that's what the fucking democrats i mean look at bill clinton's whole project yeah he made a career being way too conciliatory to republicans and they still shut the fucking government right. down on him twice right yeah mm-hmm. so. and, and and around here it's like socials haven't ever done fucking anything to the people here and democrats have made their lives miserable so (laughs) yeah well katie you make a good point i hadn't even thought about this whole electoral discussion is that maybe the democratic brand is just too irreparably damaged to even overthrow at i mean if that's the strategy you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. maybe you just don't even want to be associated with that bunch they're in such a dire i 100 percent think that that's true i mean Again, the the demographic that I find hope in is the non-voters from the last presidential election. Right, which there were plenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> you know, this is interesting to think about because, um, and it's an interesting distinction to make, sort of cognitively, but also collectively, which is that the Democratic Party's interests are, by definition, it's like sort of baked into the entire. Uh, mission statement its interests are business interests it's capitalist mm-hmm. interests and so um and, and so i'm wondering like and i've seen you say or tweet about this before and it's not something i know a whole lot about um but i'm wondering like what you think about like a party that like and, and i don't know it sounds kind of utopian in and of itself it almost sounds just as utopian as uh, sometimes it does just as utopian as trying to reform the democratic party but like i you know like a party that sort of um that does represent, in my mind, um, 
a set of specific groups, you know, workers, uh, the incarcerated, the indigenous, the rural poor, uh, you know, peasantry, rural poor. And, like, to me, like, I guess what I'm talking about is a workers' party. <laughs> I guess that's what I'm saying. What are your thoughts on yeah. that? Like, what, 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 is that something feasible? And if so, what would its role and function be within a sort of capitalist state? I am so, like, excited to talk about this because I've been starting to think more about it. And I'm in the Refoundation Caucus for DSA, and that's a topic that we have been talking about. I wouldn't go so far as to say that we've been strategizing about it, but uh-huh. um, it's certainly on the horizon, I think. Um, we definitely need a socialist party. Um, and, you know, we could call it the Workers' Party. I think that that's also great. Um <laughs> But, but if you read, have you ever read Debt's Unionism and Socialism? No, I have not. I saw you post about it, and I, this is kind of what I wanted to ask you about it, because um, yeah. it sounded really fascinating. So he just talks about the unified labor movement in a really clear and um, like easy-to-read way. Um, and it's just the, the two arms of, the, of a unified labor party, you know, on the left is, is unionism and building up the capacity of workers to disrupt capital on the economic side, but that we need um, our other arm needs to be a political socialist arm that's responsible for building the political power and challenging um, the capitalist political system. So you're working from the economic side and the political side, um, and that's the strategy that um, when workers organize themselves to disrupt capital, that the socialist party is there with a political program ready to seize, you know, the state um, when those when those disruptions happen. Right. Um, so that idea, I think, obviously, we need to think about our current conditions and what that would mean for us. But I think that idea has been completely lost. Um, and I think we should, you know, be talking about it again. And, and in some ways, that seems like a much more easily easily obtainable goal than overthrowing the democratic party and it seems like the only mm-hmm. reason people aren't pushing for this harder is because some literally broke ass parties telling us that oh we're always <laughs> just going to be a two party system and <laughs> and because they know that so many of their numbers would defect if we had a viable third party like yeah that. yeah and it's so interesting to me when the electoral people talk about um going through the democratic ballot um ballot line because that's the only feasible um, political approach, but that's never followed by, and that's why once this person is office is in office, they're going. This is their political program for dismantling the two party system. It's just like, well, we just have to buy into the two party system until the end of time. Right? Yeah, they they <laughs> yeah. implicitly acknowledge that. It's, it's kicking really the yeah, can down so the road. So simple. Is all it is. Yeah. Yeah, and I've never heard a concrete idea for um, breaking up the two party system, and even the whole money and politics thing. I mean. Nixon, a millionaire, is running on the no money in politics thing. Yeah. Um, and Ocasio Cortez did, and they talk about it for their campaign, but they never talk about, and therefore, once I'm in office, this is how I'm going to structurally <laughs> challenge and, you know, disrupt that system of needing, you know, um, the financial, the capital to, to run. Right. They're just like, so therefore, you've, we all have to raise. $20 million. Um, I don't know. It's just like, it's interesting to me that it just starts and ends with campaigning. And we're going to do it with an average donation of $27. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is really depressing because it's almost like they sort of, yeah, they, they implicitly acknowledge that. Honestly, what it does is it just displays an incredible lack of political imagination. And I don't know if it's because mm-hmm. people are just demoralized. But what I think, what I suspect it is, is that the vast majority of people who sort of control and shape the discourse around these topics are New York media elites. And, and they... Um, <laughs> Tom's smiling at me. <laughs> this, is the, this is the Infowars section. This is the Infowars <laughs> Uh, but no really (laughs) well this is one of the reasons why like Ocasio-Cortez's win gets sort of blown up to this like grand narrative Uh about about everything that's going on um and you know and I'm not knocking you know whatever if if that's your thing if that's you you live in New York and that's your thing whatever uh our grift is down here in Kentucky we we stay in our lane (laughs) neither the twain show me (laughs) right but but uh but what I suspect has happened is that over time, ever since Bernie Sanders um, sort of got, you know, had a pretty successful campaign, a lot of these um, 
sort of pundits and commentators on the sort of democratic socialist left, I've seen them gradually become sort of uh, just absorbed into the Matt Iglesias uh, liberal commentariat. And so, and so like from their perspective, they're, they're sort of, they're invested in the status quo and therefore they're not going to propose any kind of ideas that are really like the best, the, the most they can really come up with is sort of Ocasio-Cortez and that's, that toward sort of demarcates the limits of their political imagination on this. Yeah. Or at least that's my I don't, I just want to, for the record, I don't mind you shitting on her specifically because I just found out the other day she only joined DSA after she had announced her candidacy and just recently deleted, like, from her bio, any mention of DSA. <laughs> so I'm, like, completely out how on her. Can, and how so convenient. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what I'm talking about. It's just like, come on, like, have have some more... Yeah, we don't have to settle for, like, half steps. Like, there's... Mm-hmm. All options are on the table at this point. Like... The world's burning, you know what I mean? Like, all options are on the table. Go for broke. Go for broke. <laughs> you don't have to settle for half steps. You don't have to settle for somebody who's just going to be like, abolish ICE. And then when they get in there, they're like, well, what Actually, I meant by that. We need to replace it with something that's equally as <laughs> yeah. bad, just different name. I, I, don't, I just don't think, we, yeah, we don't have to settle for that. And I don't think that it's diluting energy or throwing a wet blanket on it if, to, to just call it like it is. But. I just can't imagine talking to anyone about Again, that's like outside of New York about our political system and not having them thrilled at the idea of a third party. I mean, <laughs> conservatives, I, you know, it's just it's it it is such a it's a cliche, but it's such a bubble for them. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I'm just like, I don't know who you're talking about. No one here likes Democrats. So, right. Well, we might as well just figure it out. Some guy, some conservative Trump guy. um, We talked to during canvassing. And I there is this is some of the revolutionary capacity for canvassing that I built. And that's why I do it, you know, um, talking to your neighbors and um, gauging like the political temperature of your region. Um, but after we were talking to him, he was getting so worked up. I mean, he had had like multiple surgeries. He was on um, Medicare already and um, very poor in our area. We have a lot of poor homeowners. So they talk a lot about, property taxes and stuff like that. Um, And by the end of our conversation, you know, he was like, he's like, I'm going to die from this, from his surgery. He was, he had just had, he's like, but you guys like, you, you guys need to have a revolution. And like (laughs) at the beginning of the conversation, you know, he was like talking about Trump and stuff like that. And he didn't, he, he was listening to us talk about socialism and then told us you guys need to have a revolution. Right. Um, well, so. well, it's it's just like me and Tom joke about it a lot, like the sort of media trying to pinpoint the uh, the the coal miner who voted for Trump and it doesn't regret it or whatever. But you know, I work with coal miners day on a day daily basis. I talk with them on a daily basis. Um, the vast majority of them, even if they did vote for Trump, um, wholeheartedly think that we have to have a universal health care system because. They can't breathe. They're dying slowly. You know what I mean? Like their their healthcare bills. Most coal miners, the vast majority of them are indigent if they're over the age of fifty or sixty, um, just because they've just been ground down over the years yeah. from just from actually coal mining, but from our healthcare system in general. And so yeah, you, I, I I can absolutely see that being the case. Yeah. Um, and back to the, the socialist party idea, like a workers' party doesn't have to. The, the leadership of that doesn't have to dilute its message in order to push for socialism, you know, because that's like something I, I can see being concerned about. Like, you obviously don't want reactionary elements in a political party. Right. And <clears throat> a large portion of the working class has reactionary tendencies. But there's a and, and again, in this like Deb's piece on unionism and socialism, he he absolutely like is very careful about talking about how to deal with reactionary elements and, you know, distinguishing party leadership with from um like your base right and that is an important distinction and i you know i think that i I just got into an argument with someone on twitter right before the call about abortion you know because a lot of these um pro-life apologists talk about well how are you going to win over the working class who are mostly christian if you have a pro-life stance and and your and your organization doesn't let in pro-life people like because our organization consists of socialist organizers, not our entire 
future base. You know, <laughs> right. like like there's a difference between leading a party and having a political program. Um, like I'm not going to let my parents, who are Christian and pro-life, run our, our socialist party. Right. Yeah. They're working class. Like they, they're blue-collar workers. They're going to benefit from the new political system and would lend their support. My my dad was a Bernie supporter, and he's um, a pro-life Christian. And um, and I'm like, I'm not like saying I want my parents to die because they're pro-life. I'm saying I don't want them in leadership of the Socialist Party. Exactly. Right, yeah. My mom's yeah. the same way, Okay. yeah. 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 Um, there's something I was going to say about that. Um, well, you know, as we talk about this sort of like notion of like a, a workers' party versus the Democratic Party or whatever <clears> – <throat> Something that I've really been thinking about a lot is that um, we really do need to inject this idea back into um, discussions, and, and it's good to hear that y'all are discussing this. Um, in is it refoundation? Is that what it's called? That's right. Yeah. Um, because I think the the best example of what can happen, and and I'm just saying this in the short term, um, and I you know I pointed this out on Twitter yesterday. It's like the the, the the assuredness I see from people who are invested in the Ocasio-Cortez about the short-term future and about like um, their campaigns and the Justice Democrats, like that sort of block of, of, of uh, progressive leftists running for offices across the country, the assuredness I see gives me a lot of concern because I can easily see a situation um, in which a centrist technocrat wins in 2020 and mm-hmm. and then the democratic party just turns around and says actually fuck y'all like we don't need you like thanks for you know you helped us out a little bit thanks for the free press and and mm-hmm. you don't need to look anywhere to see that this has precedence just take a look at what's going on in italy right now it's exactly what happened the left after the communist party sort of fell apart in the early 90s the left was just sort of like held together just by anti-Berlusconiism. That, that's what it held it together, just this opposition mm-hmm. to Berlusconi. Once he was out of the office, the Democrats, which is the, that party is molded entirely based off our Democratic Party here, they even say that, they immediately threw leftists under the bus... And and you can you can meet and then what do you get out of that? You get this revanchist populist anti-migrant camp uh, movement, the Five Star Movement or whatever. I mean, you, I don't know. To me, the assuredness of the short-term future and the fact that they're not willing to sort of look far into history, in you know, in both directions, gives me pause. It makes me very concerned. It makes me extremely concerned. It's like watching a, I don't like a car crash and you know the car crash in slow motion kind of thing. Yeah. And it's very frustrating. And I, you know, I think part of that frustration is watching it happen because of a small group of people in a, in a, you know, specific portion of the country speak about a strategy as though it would be universal. And so we're kind of watching from the outside. These people kind of dictate a strategy based off of a very specific um, circumstance. Right. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about with you um and this is, you know, this is pretty related to what we're talking about right now. But one thing I do want to talk about with you is the media. Um, and I'm assuming you run... <laughs> I was laughing at me again. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I'm, I, all right, look, look, my new grift is I'm the Alex Jones of the far left. All right. We're in the same place. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We're both Texans. <laughs> um... One thing I wanted to talk about, and I, I'm assuming you run the Quiet Corner uh, this Twitter account. If you if you don't want us to broadcast that, I can cut it out. Uh, no, no, I do. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, okay. Well, there was uh, there was this thing that you wrote on there recently, and me and Tom were at a party. We, we were at a barbecue, and I read it, and I read it like three or four times, and I even said it out loud to Tom. I was like, "Man, this is good stuff." <laughs> but it was right after the MSNBC piece. About oh about what is socialism and the Kanila Ing uh, dork who's running yeah, in Hawaii. Hawaii yeah. <laughs> he was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, he was like, "You're not dreaming, folks." <laughs> I was like, uh, <laughs> I, "I didn't know how to approach that." I wanted to say like, Thanks "I don't know about y'all, but I'm a calm." They are talking about us. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, Anything yeah. Anything they say about us is good. <laughs> right. Well, it's just something you wrote, and I think it sums it up perfectly. 
Um, you said, historically, positive coverage has been a sign of a movement or strategy's impotence and or vulnerability to co-option. Mass media are neither our target audience nor representative of reality, and endlessly gazing at our warped reflection leads to a dead end. And Yeah, Terrence was... <laughs> at, at the end of that barbecue, he just walked out of the bathroom and said... Under his breath, endlessly gazing, <laughs> gazing at warped reflection, and he said, "Man, that's so good." That's true, though. I was probably high. <laughs> he was. He was too. That, yeah, saying. I was too. <laughs> um, but it's absolutely right because, and I've experienced this personally, and it's really funny because, uh, as the podcast who had Nick Offerman on, and uh, was a part of that sort of. Um, you know their project this documentary that they're making about like solutions in eastern kentucky i know that every time you engage with the mass media you are you're projecting a persona into it and you're not what you're seeing back reflected back at you is not who you really are and this goes for individuals it goes for movements and organizations um and so i mean i don't know could you just talk a little bit I mean, there's probably not a whole lot to say about it other than um trying to gauge our sort of uh, broad appeal to the to the masses using mass media uh, it just seems like as you said a dead end yeah it's like not only a dead end it's it's just like the worst end you know right. it, it would if we continue down that route it's it's just like imploding over t- like over time it's such a bad strategy and it really damaged um, and killed, like you could say, uh, SDS in the 60s. Right. They just, um, they couldn't have, like, a correct reading of reality because they just, they saw their image and they tried to, so they they just lost a sense of self and a sense of reality, so they just kept ramping up this, like, performative um, aspect to their organization right. because they would get media attention for certain actions and the way that it appealed to um, mass a mass media audience. Um, and so they would get that feedback, and then they would just respond to that feedback, and then it was just this loop that happened over and over until the, until they got ridiculous. <laughs> right. Um, and just lost a sense of proportion, a, you know, a, a gauge on reality, and, um, and their organization died. So it's really worrisome. Um, especially when it's accompanied by zero analysis. Like you could, I think you could make, you could make a case for, and there are debates in media studies about movements and media and stuff like that, about, you know, how you can use mass media for your own purposes. Um, But that's a tricky game and it's, you know, it's very delicate and we have no, our organization has no um, media strategy. Um, one person does media relations and it doesn't seem like they think critically about it very much. Um, And another example I can think of is the whole NRA debacle where um, the NRA was like talking about DSA and then DSA national used that in some, you know, like uh, PR stuff. Like the NRA is afraid of DSA and you should join us and, um, and people in my chapter were talking about it, and we were just so concerned because it was it was like thinking you can co-opt a message from a professional um, PR department of right. one of the wealthiest um, centers of power in our government for a tiny organization who has no media strategy is so foolish like it, it it made us look ridiculous like so ridiculous and it made me really mad um and just thinking like yeah they should be afraid of us and stuff like that and you know it, i mean i could go into that more like why that was bad but i think you guys probably know um yeah and um yeah so it's just it's a really big issue for our organization and i think it we really need to develop like more tactical media strategies, including like media literacy for organizers. I agree 100%. Um, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <great. laughs> um, I'm going to go, I'm going to add one more thing to that, which is um, another huge problem that I see. Like 
no no example from the past is like a one-to-one comparison so obviously there's specifics to our organization but something that i a similarity between sds and dsa is um with mass media having um unelected like unaccountable leaders getting amplified from the media side and them being upheld as like representatives of the organization but they have no on the ground connection to us and no accountability so they're able to like craft this um public facing image of dsa that no one had a say in um and that happened in sds too and and it just you know, it, it improved the careers of a few people right. who got to speak for the organization. Um, and that became what the organization was to the public. And it just, you know, was an out of control mess by the end of it. And I think that there is a really fundamentally what when you really get down to it, mass media, honestly, it doesn't matter if it's the New York Times or MSNBC or the most ostensibly progressive, um, well, I don't want to say every single uh, mass media outlet but the vast majority of them would go f- they would they would be willing to just go full on um, if there was a sort of like fascist takeover of government in this country they don't see fascism I think as an existential threat the only thing they really see as an existential threat is communism people running like workers uh, as I said earlier workers the disenfranchised and marginalized running things and so like mm-hmm. when you have that in mind there's several editorial filters that that your message is not going to get through um, and that they are going to try to dilute and uh, that was um, you know I don't can't really talk very uh you know intelligently about sd the example of sds but it just seems kind of i don't know it just seems kind of like yeah, i mean a, they're businesses exactly they're exactly yeah. <laughs> they sell a product <laughs> yeah yeah and that's the thing about you know what i was saying with um not being too excited because it means that we're a good product you know what i mean if if um if it's being presented in a positive light it means that it's being packaged as a as a good product that's um, not a, not an existential threat to both the media company and the political system. Um, and it's something to, and, and that doesn't mean that it was an accurate representation, but that's why it's bad to celebrate it as an accurate representation. Right, exactly. Um, because it means that we're, it, it would be accepting that we are a good product to a company. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's very, that's very spot on. Um, okay, so yeah, covered the media. That's good. Um, we covered uh, some electoralism stuff. Let's just get down to brass tacks here. Let's get down to what we really had you wanted to have you on. And this goes back to nationalization. Or corn. About earlier. <laughs> corn. I came in here to talk about <laughs> corn, goddamn. I came in here to talk about corn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Let's see what you got. What, 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 uh, what? What do you? What do we need to know about how to plan and structure uh, centralized agricultural? Yes. <laughs> this is this is why I'm here. <laughs> this is this, this um, is why you're here. <laughs> what was that? Mm. Nothing. Go ahead. Um, yeah. I well. What do you want to know? What? How do we do it? Yeah. Yes. Well, we we need socialists in power first. True. Okay. Because um, that's. I mean, that's the thing about the nationalization thing. It's not a bad conversation to have about what it would look like it's just that people forget to have the discussion of power relations and property relations along with it right um which is any nationalization pro- project has to come after workers in political power right um because yeah like for the reasons we mentioned before so like that's the important caveat before we like talked about anything else but um yeah i mean i i really started thinking more about it. I mean, obviously, socialists through history have been doing it, but just as an individual, um, we live in a, um, a dairy region in the Northeast. Um, my um, husband's family uh, were all dairy farmers. His grandfather was a dairy farmer here. He has an uncle who is a dairy farmer in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, there's been a huge... Um, uh, like volatile, a very volatile market with uh, dairy in America, and uh, you've probably seen like headlines about farmer suicides on the right, rise. Right. Um, and so I re- really started thinking about it with some of these recent news stories about uh, the market crashes, and it's obviously 
constructed uh, by the state in a lot of ways. Um, and just thinking through, like, um, you know, what do we do about this? And as you start to think about what you would do about an agricultural crisis like this, I just, you can't, you naturally come to the idea of um, not only like nationalization, but internationalization of agriculture. Right. Um, not only for economic reasons, but in the in the face of climate change, um, how are we going to survive and have food to eat if, um, you know, we have monoculture in one part of the world and that's it. Right. Um, and so, you know, just thinking through it, you just, any, I, as far as I'm concerned, like any rational thinking person who thought through this agricultural crisis to its logical end would come to the understanding that we need to have international democratic control and central planning for agriculture. Right. It's, it's the kind of, um, you know, it's the sort of like locus point for like the argument of centralized planning, because like I was talking to somebody about this last week and it was about natural gas, but I think the sort of same principle applies. Um, natural gas prices right now are um, depressed because there was a huge glut in the in the market uh, over the last five years, and um, it's just really fascinating to to talk to people about that like that very basic idea like what is saying about a system that overproduces like mm -hmm. what what is saying about a system that like um, floods the market with with goods and commodities. Um, and then sends the entire economy spiraling into some sort of uh, panic or, or whatever. And, yeah. and, and so yet you th that's ultimately why for me, like sort of market socialism or, or you know all these other names that people have for it is just so inadequate because like you, you got you it's have fake. to yeah, exactly. you got to play <laughs> like <laughs> market socialism is, is fake. so right what is like, that? Why do I always hear people say it? I don't even even know what it means. <laughs> Oh, it's just, it's just like, I mean, the very loose definition of it being that after socialism, you can still base um, production off of supply and demand. So basically atomizing um, production decisions, um, leaving it up to like, I mean, so they believe in like workers, worker co-ops so that there's no, um, there's no like hierarchical control in a workplace, uh -huh. but um, all of those individual worker cooperatives would be basing production off of market off of the market right so, market um, imperatives yeah so yeah. it's just like i don't know it, it's not real it's not actually socialism it's just like thinking the <laughs> farmer's market is socialist or something <laughs> I, I appreciate that I've, I've bluffed my way through so many conversations about this <laughs> <laughs> i hope i'm right <laughs> no i mean that that i think that that's probably it um yeah. I think, I think the, Richard Wolf is the one that believes that yes. socialism is just worker cooperatives. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Which, like, as though like every socialist in history hasn't talked about workers' cooperatives and why they aren't socialism. Right. Exactly. Well, it's. I think this notion of like planning, um, uh, for whatever reason, people get uh, either scared about it or they've so internalized the anti-communism of the last 100 years that they just like. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but it's weird. It's like there's a weird contradiction in it too, because as we were talking on that one episode, you know, the Bush administration um, subsidized corn production, and it's just like a lot of the things that we do with agriculture right now is planned, but it, oh yeah, it doesn't it's make any planning. sense. Exactly, it's exactly it's capitalist planning. It's not only cap it's capitalist imperialist planning because the reasons we over produce corn is to use it as food aid to the, you know, to developing countries that we've started a war in. Right. Um, and then we start a war so that there's refugees and that we force them into a concentration camp so that they starve and then we sell them our corn and um, then they can thank us by becoming a colonial state. Right. Yeah, it's it's oh, all man, that's dark. very dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the whole thing that, like, if, a, if an actual ca capitalist system existed... It would just be the most bloodthirsty uh, people killing each other in the streets thing that you can possibly imagine. Um, like the capitalist system we have now is very planned. It's just not. Oh yeah. It's just not um, how they. I don't know. It's not done More with. Managerial. 
Right. Right. Good word, Tom. Yeah, like it's gonna like it's gonna crash because it's planned or something like that. <laughs> right. Right. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, so it's it's just a, a vision of, um, and it, and again, it can't be just like national because if we're really talking about climate change, well, I'm going to back up for a second and say like, I think the thing that's different about us talking about planned agriculture now and um, communists in the past planning agriculture, which I think there's obviously a lot of good things to learn from, um, you know, killing off all the landowners um, in the past, but. Um, is a lot of that uh, planned agriculture was focused on feeding industrialization right. within those same states. So, yeah. um, you know, our reason for central planning internationally would be global survival of the human race because we're going to run out of food. Right. Um, and, you know, so and I think it's also important to know that a lot of um, even eco-socialists, talk about um, like communal agriculture. So it's like collectivizing agriculture, but not planning it so that, you know, we need to teach also like teach all socialists how to garden, which we do. Um, or again, like the farmer's markets are socialist kind of thing, like buy local or things like that is if you are really pushing buy local for the long-term agricultural plan, what are you going to do when a hurricane wipes out the Northeast and we no longer have <laughs> Um, nutmegs, dairy, you nutmegs. know, or like nutmegs. <laughs> um, so it's like the only way to have to survive a really volatile climate is having production, like these, like production centers decentralized right. throughout the entire world, and farmers being public servants that respond to um, a democratic workers' direction of what needs to be produced for who. And in response to what shift in the climate, um, and we need to be able to shift production like on a dime. We need to be able to like, well, um, all of our wheat is gone because it's too hot in Canada now, um, just like it was too hot in the U.S. 20 years ago. Right. And so now, um, you know, I don't know anything about growing wheat, but so now this country is going to be has already started growing it because we knew this was coming. You know, so it's just like it needs to be a really um, quickly adapting international system in order to feed the world, which we can. It's just a matter of choosing to do so. Right. It's probably the sort of, and maybe you disagree. I, I don't know. I'm I'm saying this without a whole lot of uh, knowledge behind it. But it, it, to me, it's, it's sort of like uh, maybe the marriage between sort of like eco-socialism and uh, a sort of... Um, computerized socialist uh society like you can you you can plan production or or switch it on a dime or whatever using all kinds of complex computer modeling and people say that when they want to sound smart computer modeling and so uh so i, I don't know I, it seems like the two aren't really at loggerheads oh like Man. um like a fully automated yes kind of communism <laughs> yeah but I, I i don't really know much about um I don't really know much about that. I didn't show up to really talk about corn today. I mean, I, that's a good question. Like, whether it's, like, really at odds. I mean, you can automate certain farm work, but in terms of, um, like, sustainable practices and that knowledge, like, you obviously need people in that right. process, people with, like, longstanding knowledge of, you know, sustainable practices. Yeah, um, you're right. And it gives people, like, a sort of sense of, of of purpose i don't know it it's just really insane that this story of um of uh you know all these suicides this sort of like mass epidemic of farmer suicides is not a bigger story and when it is it's just sort of mocked like howard dean had a, a tweet about you know wisconsin farmers like killing themselves or something oh my god it's yeah just like i don't know it's just this it's you know it's it's the it's an age old uh, profession. Literally, what what brought us from being hunter gatherer societies into civilization, farming, and um, you know I don't know. It's just uh, not often talked about as a no, as a, not. as a class. And I want to point out Wendell Berry, friend of the podcast. Friend of the I, podcast. I'm assuming. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah we like Wendell. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, We've tried to get him on the like, show, but we thought it'd be hilarious to fill this like agrarian grandfather into this dirty little right show of ours. Because he doesn't have like electricity in his house, uh, and so we were like, "How's that work?" Because you know, with podcasts, you kind of have to have to go to him. And <laughs> I guess we didn't work that piece out. Yet, recorded but. on a tape recorder. Anyways, as you're saying. Oh no! I was just gonna say like, um, I love like how he's gotten, as far as I can tell, more radical as he's gotten older, um, and. You know, he has some, like, certain, I would say more culturally conservative ideas for sure. I love the man. But um, but he has talked about central planning of agriculture. He's written about, um, like, a 50-year farm bill. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever read his stuff about that. But um, just the need for long-term central planning um, because we have no direction nationally for how we should have sustainable practices. Our farm bill is just a mess of a of a document that has nothing to do with surviving or feeding people um, in a healthy, economically and, you know, otherwise way. Right. Um, And he's just trying to, he's like used it as a template for thinking more long-term about agriculture and what we need to do um, collectively. So I, I just think that it's such an interesting thing to read. Um, He worked on it with some Institute. I can't remember the name of it. But it's something. It's really something to read. Yeah, I I, uh, I actually had read. I think you included it in something you wrote. It was called like the Land Institute or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. No, Wendell Wendell Berry seems pretty cool. Tanya sort of knows him. Um, she has one of one of his books is dedicated to her. Yeah. Oh wow. His his wife's name's Tanya too, but <laughs> right. it's that it right. it's legit. She uh, is dedicated to our Tanya. Yeah, she protested him way back in the day when um she protested with him way back in the day when um people still protested against the coal industry and there was a active coal industry in the state. Um anyways, so um that's really about every we're at an hour. And I think that, like, just to sort of, like, sum up everything, just to sort of, like, rep, put a bow on it. I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to add, Tom. No, nah, my conscience is clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, more long-term strategizing, more long-term thinking and planning. Um, don't get, uh, you know, sort of swept up. You know, today was the day that they, they announced uh Justice Kennedy's replacement on the Supreme Court. And honestly, it's so strange to me. Um, you know, and, and there are legitimate concerns. I'm not saying that there aren't. But it's it's really funny to me because there's a lot of things that have happened in the Trump administration where I find myself uh, feeling very panicked and like, oh, my God, everything's uh, you know falling apart and going crazy. But this was literally maybe one of the only things where I just sort of like, so I was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> it's like yeah. it didn't even cross my um I don't know maybe it's just because I wasn't surprised or or what but um but like I think the society that we're organizing towards the the sort of revolutionary moment that we're organizing towards um would like to see a sort of dismantlement not just of the capitalist system but also just our our overall philosophical um, approach to justice and to um, and to I don't know lawmaking, and for me that includes dismantling the Supreme Court, and mm-hmm. and I know that sounds absurd. This is another thing I wanted to talk about before we let you go. <laughs> There's another thing I want to talk about. It's like people. I think people have this notion of like communists or like far leftists as like these people who just want revolution tomorrow and like you know and and that's they use that as a sort of like cudgel or something to say like oh you're unrealistic you're idealistic all this but i don't think anybody's actually advocating for that first of all if we actually tried that it'd be a massive failure and we'd discredit yeah. ourselves and we'd all wind up in jail um <laughs> but uh second of all you know and we're not saying that it has to happen tomorrow or next week or next year but like i would you know just sort of put it out there that like societies have gotten to that place before where a lot a large enough movement of people look around at the same time and go things don't have to be this way um Mm -hmm. that we can break with the old way of doing things and and that's what a revolution is you break with the old way of doing things and um yeah and it's about bringing the focus back to it has to be a like a 
um, a change in property relations and in power relations. Exactly. And if you lose sight of that, you're not talking about socialism. It has to include change in property. Um, and with that comes a change in political power. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, and again, it's like it's just a misconception of like what we were talking about with um, people calling things unrealistic. It's, it's the misconception is on the side of the person calling it unrealistic because no one who has ever studied revolution thinks it happens overnight. It's right. a long struggle. And the point is the is the kind of work you do and the kinds of goals that you have. It's not it's not a matter of timing. I don't know if a revolution is going to happen in my lifetime, but I'm working on revolutionary tactics because that those are the tactics that I think have historical precedence. Right. And, you know, with all the things that we've mentioned, impending climate change, disaster on the horizon, with just about any issue you can imagine, it's we owe it to the future generations to be organizing towards that. I mean, these half steps and whatever, it's it's time to cut the shit. <laughs> it's time to cut the <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I need to start telling people. Yeah, it's time yeah. to cut the shit. <laughs> that's I'm why a... I started started just threatening to like kick people's asses. Yeah, right. Yeah. All this debating is getting tiring. Let's just right. start kicking lips asses. That's, that's what that's what this episode is going to be called. Time to cut the shit. <laughs> cut the shit. I like that. Well, uh, Katie, thanks for joining us. Um, Hell yeah, it's fun. This has been a great conversation. Um, don't be surprised if we ask you to come back on again sometime. I had so much fun. I was so excited to talk to you guys. I love listening to your podcast while I'm gardening. Oh, great. Hell yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's the setting we have in mind today. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> um, washing dishes, gardening, and um, uh, maybe Mute. going to... What's that? Commutes, I guess. Commutes, right. Or going to Once the... I'm better at my job, I'll listen to it in the truck. But oh I'm yeah, too scared right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get your get your sea legs under you. Yeah, but but seriously though, like I mean, as far as podcasts I know, you guys are the only ones I listen to and actually agree with politically. So it's really nice to have you guys out there. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and you know, this is the whole point of podcasting. You know, we we yep. find like-minded people and. Uh, we get together and synthesize our and ideas. Do more podcasts. And do more podcasting. <laughs> Can I give a shout out to Aaron? Absolutely. Aaron Goodrow, I think is how you say her last name. Yeah, Aaron. She's, uh, she's my Trillbillies pal. In, so. Mo- in Montana. Shouts out to Aaron. Um, oh, yeah, Aaron in Montana. Longtime listener, one of our very first fans, really. She did a playlist Aww. for us, even. Yeah, she did do a playlist for us. Yeah. So she's just the cutest right. and very smart. So Right. Yeah. Agreed. Well, shouts out to uh, shouts out to Aaron and shouts out to the Quiet Corner. That's a great name. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Katie. Well, thank you so much, and um, we'll see you on the internet. All right. Talk to you later. All right. See ya. See ya. Okay, bye.